Father, we do ask that you just bless this time in the study of your word. And once again, we come and we desire to, Lord, gain from these chapters. These are really heavy, you know, things that are being proclaimed. But, Lord, uh, John was told to write the things down that must shortly come to pass. And, Lord, these things will be fulfilled. And it tells us something of where we're headed and what our priorities should be in life. So, Lord, we just once again commit this time in the study of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So keep in mind that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, that the key to understanding the book of Revelation is found in the outline given to us there in chapter 1. As John uh, is uh, told that you are to write the things which you have seen. And of course, John there, as he heard the voice of, of uh, a loud voice, he turned to see the glorified Lord Jesus. And he gives a description. And Jesus is there standing in the midst of seven lampstands, which were the seven churches there in Proconsular Asia, seven literal churches that existed at the end of the first century. So John, first of all, write the things which you have seen. That's chapter one. And then write the things which are chapters two and three, the church things as Jesus turned to those seven lampstands and he would write a letter to them and he addressed those churches. It was a powerful study because it applies to us as a church. It applies to us as a Christian. He commended them in the things that they were doing well in. He would bring correction to them in the areas that they needed to turn away from, repent of. And, and so that's why the study was so powerful. It was so important. So write the things which you have seen, that's chapter 1, the things which are the church things, chapters 2 and 3, and then thirdly, the things that will take place after this, and that is chapter 4 to the end of the book. And we know that in chapters 4 and 5, we have that heavenly scene that's taken place as John would see the one that sat on the throne, the things around the throne, the things proceeding from the throne, and those in front of the throne. And in chapter 5, we see the church there, I believe, because they sang a new song from every tribe, tongues, people, and nations, that you have redeemed us by your blood. That's the church. So I believe that we will be in that heavenly scene. And then chapter 6 through 19 is that seven-year period that is given to us all the events taking place, the, the, the things that uh, are going to happen during that seven-year period prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ that we will see in chapter 19. So over the last several weeks, we have been looking at the things that take place in that seven-year period called the tribulation period, or more formally, it is called Daniel's 70th week. And in our previous study last time, we saw that there was this proclamation of three angels that they would fly around the world. They preached to every tongue and people and nations, um, and, and they were preaching the first one, proclaiming the gospel. You know, turn to him who created everything. And, and they, uh, that angel would give the everlasting gospel to everyone. The second angel made a proclamation that Babylon has fallen. Uh, the economic system, the, the political system, the false religious system of Babylon, it's all going to come down. And what we're going to see next time 
chapter 17 is the uh, religious Babylon that's going to be destroyed. And then we will see commercial Babylon be destroyed in chapter 18. So Babylon has fallen, fallen. Babylon, uh, that world system, political system, the world's economic system, even the religious system, it's all going to be destroyed and come to an end. And then the third proclamation by the third angel flying around to every tongue, uh, peoples and nations and tribe is that that angel is done to declare, do not take the mark of the beast. And we saw in chapter 13, as the world turns to the beast, which is known as the Antichrist, that the world begins to worship the beast. The beast begins to make war with the saints, that is the tribulation saints, that are coming out of that seven-year period uh, as a result of the 144,000 evangelists, the 144,000 sealed by God in chapter 7. And then also we studied about them in chapter 14. And and many are going to come to the Lord during the tribulation period. They are known as the tribulation saints. And they are going to be heavily persecuted by the Antichrist, as well as Israel, the Jews, who are going to reject him as their Messiah. Because the Antichrist in the middle of that seven-year period, as you know, is going to go into the temple in Jerusalem that will be rebuilt, and he's going to proclaim himself as God to be worshipped worship as God. So anyone who does not make their allegiance to the beast, who does not worship the beast or take the mark of the beast, that this angel says, don't do it. Don't do it because there's no hope of salvation if you do that. And of course, chapter 13 says that you won't be able to buy or sell because he has set up this economic system that you won't be able to buy and sell unless you make your allegiance to him. So all this has taken place. And then last time we also saw there is this preview, the harvest that will take place, the harvest um, that will take place at the end of the tribulation period. I would encourage you to go to Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus tells tells of that parable, the wheat and the tares, and, and they will be separated. And Jesus even gives the explanation of that parable in chapter 13. And we know that Jesus also would tell about in Matthew chapter 25 that when he comes back, there's going to be a separation of the sheep and the goats. So a lot of things are taking place. And now as we continue on, we're going to see the, the bold judgments being poured out. Now keep in mind, that there were and are three waves of judgments that will happen during the tribulation period. There were the sealed judgments that we saw in chapter 6. By the end of the fourth seal, a quarter of the earth had been killed. That's a lot of people. That is all of South America, North America, and Western Europe. That's a quarter of the earth. All by the time of the fourth seal, that had been opened up. A quarter of the earth had been killed. The seventh seal produced seven angels that stood with seven trumpets, and each of the angels blew their trumpets, and the result was judgment upon the earth. And we saw that the last three trumpets were called the woe trumpet calls because of the severity of the judgment. And then the seventh angel blowing his trumpet in chapter 11, which are going to produce seven more angels with the bold judgments. And these are the most intense and severe judgment. 
But before we get into these judgments, the Lord has us to see the scene that has taken place in heaven, and we're going to get a heavenly perspective as we open up here in chapter 15 of Revelation. We do read in verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. So chapter 14 gave us a quick preview and description the consummation of all things, including the battle of Armageddon. This final wrath of God ha has an eternal purpose. Listen, this isn't God just blowing off steam. The word complete means to reach an end or a conclusion. This is a judgment against a Christ-rejected world. Now remember that Paul, when he was writing to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, after he writes about the rapture of the church, we will meet the Lord in the air, and, and, and thus we will always be with him. Comfort one another with these words. And he continues, and he says, For you know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you, brethren, he comes back to the Christians, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse and, and Luke's narrative of it, in Luke chapter 21, when he was talking about the tribulation period, he would conclude by saying, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape the things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. There are those who will say to you and to me that are looking for the rapture of the, of the church, looking for the return of the Lord, that they will say that, Oh, you're just wanting to escape. Stick your head in the sand. Well, Jesus said there is a way of escape. I don't want to go through the seven years of tribulation. So he says that pray, therefore, that you may escape these things that shall come to pass. That is, those things in the tribulation period that he just got through talking about that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. And, and so we have a way of escape, and that is that Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church is going to come for his church, I believe, before the tribulation period. And, of course, we saw the promise to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3 that he said to them, Be, because you have been faithful and, and because you have kept my word and not deny my name, that I will keep you from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. So Jesus himself promised the church that I will keep you, and the Greek reads, out of and away from the hour of tribulation. He did not say, I will keep you through the tribulation. He said, I'm going to keep you out and away from the hour of tribulation. There's only one time, one hour, that tribulation comes upon the whole earth, and that is the tribulation period. Jesus said, watch therefore, because the Son of Man comes when you least expect it. So there is that event when we talk about the return of the Lord. There's the rapture of the church when he comes back for his church before the seven-year tribulation period that we've been studying about since chapter 6. And the Lord will descend from heaven and with the shout and the voice of our archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we here alive and remain shall be caught up. Harpazo, the Greek word, the Latin word rapturous, where we get the English word rapture. 
It's a sudden take-in together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It is amazing to me how many Christians and even those who are teaching behind the pulpits that are saying more and more that there is no rapture of the church. They'll say, well, the word rapture isn't in the Bible. If you have a Latin Bible, it is. It is a promise that is given to us. And Titus, of course, as Paul's writing to him, called it the blessed hope. So I believe that the church will be taken out of the way in what is called the rapture of the church. Jesus comes for his church. In the second coming that we will see in chapter 19, Jesus comes back with the church. And we will come back with him and he will establish his kingdom. So we will come back at the end of the tribulation period. So there are going to be those who are going to be saved in the tribulation period. They are going to be persecuted very heavily. And as we are seeing here, as we are coming to the end of the tribulation period, that we are seeing that, that God is judging a Christ-rejected world. Listen, sin must be judged. His kingdom must be established. One of the things that we see concerning God's judgment, I believe, is that he is in no hurry to judge the world. God is a God of mercy. He's long-suffering, and he is patient. Slow the wrath. But there is going to come a time when judgment must come. In chapter 6, the fifth seal, we saw the cry of the martyrs. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood who dwell on the earth? And the answer is now chapters 15 and 16. It's time. Judgment here in these bold judgments that are poured on the earth. And we may look at it and say, whoa, that is intense. But we respond and we say what the multitude in heaven will say in Revelation chapter 19. And that is, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Righteous and true are your judgments. I think that chapters 15 and 16 here show us the reality of the repercussions of sin. Listen, sin is serious. We know that sin, because Adam sinned, sin and death has come into the world. And sin and death has come to every man. And because of sin, the wages of sin is death and has separated us from God. And, and sin is so serious that the only way that we can be forgiven is God sent his son to die for you and for me. He didn't leave us without any hope. Sin destroys, it brings death. And it is nothing to glory in. It is nothing to snicker about or to be passive about. And this is the result of sin, judgment. It must be judged by God who is holy and pure and awesome and righteous. And we need to understand that as Christians. And that's why it's such a, a deception for those who think that the world's going to end up in bliss. We're all going to be enlightened. And, and, you know, world peace is going to come and all of this. No peace will come until the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, comes. And the judgment of God will come to pass. And we cannot mistake the patience and long-suffering of God and think that God won't deal with sin. He did deal with sin in sending his son. And Jesus took the wrath for you and for me. And that's why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're not appointed to wrath, but to attain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And as he hung on that cross, he took the wrath for you and for me. And that's what we declare to others. Jesus died for your sins. He died in place of you and for you as all of your sins were placed upon him. He experienced the wrath of the Father for you. But for those who reject him, those who dwell on the earth, a term for non-believers, judgment is going to come and his kingdom is going to be established. So in verse 2, as we continue, and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Interesting, this, this heavenly scene here in chapter 15, something like a sea mingled with fire. There are many commentators suggest that this speaks of God's holiness and righteousness in the midst of persecution. The tribulation saints having been persecuted by the Antichrist. And as we went through those chapters, chapters 11 and 12 and 13, it looks like the Antichrist is about to win. Uh, the two witnesses are killed in Jerusalem. Uh, he begins to persecute the woman and, and, and goes after uh, those Jews who are fleeing to the rock city of Petra. And, uh, he makes war with the saints, chapter 13, and he, he overcomes them. Uh, the whole world is turning to the Antichrist and, and worshiping the beast. And, and here's the false prophet that comes along and he's pointing to the world worship the beast and and fires coming from heaven and all these signs and wonders it looks like that those believers in the tribulation period are the losers but chapter 13 is an earthly view this is a heavenly scene and they are victorious verse 12 over the beast they're not losers and there's something for us here tonight. Because we're not losers either. And you may find yourself where you're in your own tribulation. You might be thinking, you know, I'm not all that concerned about the tribulation period and all of this. I'm going through tribulation right now. I'm being attacked by the enemy. And as we go through those times, we can feel like that, that I'm going to lose out. Things are falling apart. It's going to come to an end. They had victory over the beast. That's heaven's perspective. Earthly's perspective is that they were losers. And if you get anything out of this book of Revelation, I hope it is so much more than the charts that we can make for the sealed judgments and the bold judgments, you know. But I pray and hope that we know this that these Christians needed to know at this time is the same thing that we need to know. That Jesus is on the throne and that he's in control and that you're going to heaven. So set your mind on it. And John is writing to a group of believers that to the world, they were losers, persecuted. They had lost everything. They couldn't buy or sell anything. And they are being reminded in chapter 15 that they are actually victorious over the beast. And in those Christians in the end of the first century, that they needed to be reminded that they are victorious over the beast Domitian that, that was persecuting the Christians very heavily. And whatever tribulation that you are going through, listen, you're not going to lose. God is going to win in your life. Will you trust in that and then rest in that? You keep looking to him. You keep looking to heaven. You keep close to him. Don't 
Don't pull away from him. And know that the world, the world's going to see all of us as a loser as Christians. But Jesus said, they will persecute you. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But also for you who are really going through the fire of tribulation, the Lord is with you, and he loves you, and his promises are true for you. Hang on to him. Stay close to him. And that which concerns you, he is going to perfect. He will perfect that which concerns you. He will complete that work that he's begun in you. He promises. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Especially in the day of Christ Jesus. So verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant, servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. In this song of praise, the song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15, it's the first song in the scriptures. This song of Moses, also called the Song of the Lamb, is the last song of the Bible. In Exodus chapter 14, you know the story. The children of Israel that come out of, of Egypt, they leave in orderly ranks. They're backed up against the Red Sea. They're boxed in. They're about ready to be wiped out. Pharaoh's army's coming down on them, and they cried out to the Lord. And not a one of them knew what God was about to do. And that was, he was going to part the Red Sea. And oftentimes, we don't know exactly how God is going to work in our tribulation that we're going through. You may not know how he's going to work, but he's going to be faithful to his word. And he loves you. And he is going to work. And he's doing a glorious work if you allow him to do it. And even in the times of hurt and pain, know that the Lord is there and he is working. And we can look to him. And we can rest in his love. And the first song as we look at scripture took place at the Red Sea. This last song <laughs> taking place at the Glassy Sea. They sang, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. Perhaps you sang that in Sunday school, Exodus chapter 15 here. Great and marvelous are your works. Just and true are your ways. This is the heart of true worship. Great and marvelous are your works. And ju just and true are your ways. And I just want to ask, is that your heart? That, Lord, I do trust in you. And I know, even though I don't understand everything that you allow me to go through or why I'm experiencing this tribulation or pain or loss. But I do know this, that marvelous and great and true and just are your ways. And when we get to heaven, that's what we're going to sing. Righteous and true are your judgments, your decisions, O Lord. Right now, it may be hard to wrap our heads around some of the things that perhaps you've been through. But his word is true, and he cannot lie, and he does no evil. And he is working for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And his purpose is to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. And we have his promises. And we don't always understand everything. But we know that God's ways are true. 
and you've heard me say this so many times, I want to say it once again tonight, that when you are confronted with the things that you don't understand, fall back on the things that you do understand. His love for you, his word given to you. And when we get to heaven, we're going to sing this song. We're not going to be complaining and murmuring about God. But notice here, your works, your ways. There is not one personal pronoun, but you, Lord, these martyrs are focused on God. It's all about God. And I want to encourage you that as you go through tribulation, sometimes we get so overwhelmed, we're so focused on, on the tribulation, uh, on the problem, uh, on what it is that we're facing, that we don't focus on the Lord. And I understand that. And it can be hard. But that's one thing that David teaches us, the sweet softness of Israel as we go through the Psalms, that David was overwhelmed. He, he talked about how those coming against him. He, he would talk about how he soaked his pillow crying at night, the pain that he was going through. But he always turned it back on the Lord and focused on the Lord. And that's what we need to do. We need to get our minds and hearts back on him and say, Lord, help me. Lord, I need you. I need you to just rest in your arms and hide under the shadow of your wings, Lord, right now. Because I know that you're with me. And Lord, I need to sense your love and your presence. And in verse 4 again, who shall not fear you? Unfortunately, we live in a day and age where few show a reverence or fear to God. Our society doesn't fear God. Deuteronomy chapter 5, I'm reminded, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments that it might be well with them and their children forever. You know, I love talking about the love of God and the grace of God. And, you know, it's not always easy teaching through sections of the Bible like this that speak of the judgment of God. But we are to reverence him. That, that's not an unhealthy fear. We don't have the spirit of fear, of terror, but we have the spirit of adoption that we can cry out, Abba, Father. So having a fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, which you don't hear a whole lot in the church today, that is that we reverence him. We believe in a holy, awesome, incredible God. You know, it's like when my kids were small, you know, they weren't afraid of me. But if they did something, they, you know, did something where they got in trouble, there was a reverence there. Because they knew when dad got home that I was going to deal with them. So we reverence the Lord. And any chastening that he does is because he loves us and he cares for us. And, and to have that fear, Lord, I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to hurt you by sinning or, or being full of carnality or walking in disobedience because you are an incredible God that sent your son to die for me. And we have that reverence for God, that respect for him. He's an awesome, almighty God that we have relationship with. And after these things, I look and behold, the temple, the tabernacle, the testimony in heaven was open. In verse 6, and out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. So the seven angels fall out with the seven bowls of God's wrath. And then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple 
was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So judgment is going to be poured out. No one can enter into the temple until the judgment is poured out. It's an awesome scene. The glory of God, the power of God. No one comes into the temple in heaven until the judgment is complete. But there's a wonderful truth for us here tonight. Isn't it a marvelous privilege that we are told in Hebrews chapter 10 that we can come into the Holy of Holies boldly with confidence, not our own confidence, but we can come into the Holy of Holies. You see, the Holy of Holies, as most of you know, that's where the tangible presence of God was. That's where, in the Old Testament time, the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat was on top. It was behind the veil, behind the holy place. The, the, the inner sanctuary is what it was called. And the high priest was only allowed to go into that Holy of Holy to, to make atonement, to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And it was an awesome thing. Matter of fact, there is tradition that says that what the other priests would do when he would go in on the day of atonement, the high priest behind the veil, is they would tie a rope around his ankle. And if he went into the Holy of Holies in the tangible presence of God and he was defiled or he wasn't right with God and, and he would wear bells on the hem of his garment and as long as they heard those bells ringing, they knew that it, he was okay. But if they heard a thud, they would take that rope and they would pull him out. Now whether that's true or not, I don't know. But that's what tradition says. Because no one dared go behind that veil into the Holy of Holies. And the Lord said that if anybody comes into the Holy of Holies beside the high priest on the Day of Atonement, you will be struck dead. And what a wonderful privilege that you and I have an opportunity that the book of Hebrews says because of Jesus Christ, we can come boldly with confidence into the Holy of Holies. That is into the presence of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 4 says that we can come to his throne of grace in time of need. And you see, we can do it any time we want. We can stay as long as we want and as many times as we want. Do we understand the privilege that we have, what Jesus Christ has provided for us? Can you imagine Aaron, the high priest, if he was here hearing this, he would say, wow. You mean you Christians, because the Messiah came and died for your sins, that you can come boldly into the Holy of Holies? That's an incredible thing into the presence of the Lord. Because our sins were judged by Jesus on the cross, and he took the judgment for you and for me. But here's the other truth. For those who reject him, whose sins are not forgiven by the blood of Jesus, they will never enter into the temple of God. That is the truth of the scripture. And for us, for you and for me that are forgiven, washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, listen. We don't want to miss out on the fullness of his presence and his glory and his fellowship because I'm walking in carnality or I regard iniquity in my heart or there's something that the Lord is dealing with me and, and I am not giving it to the Lord. I'm not turning to the Lord. I'm walking in sin, carnality. You're going to miss out on something that the Lord wants to do in your life and your fellowship is going to be hindered because of that. 
And I've seen it happen in Christians' lives where they go on a road where they begin to be filled with carnality, worldliness, whatever the case may be. Oh, you have relationship, but fellowship, intimacy, closeness is hurt because, because you're walking away from him. And you're not desiring to walk in obedience and holiness. That can happen to any of us. It's like you're standing at the door of the tabernacle. I don't want to stand at the door of the tabernacle. I want to go behind the veil. I want to sit at the feet of Jesus and know him and walk with him. So this judgment is coming. Now the scene changes to the earth in chapter 16. And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. So the first bowl judgment poured out on those who dwell on the earth. It's, it's terrible sores. Um, this voice uh, is God's voice since no one could come into the temple. And it's serious. It's grievous sores, painful. They're the ones that took the mark of the beast. The angel told them, don't do that. Don't take the mark of the beast. It seemed logical at the time. It seemed, yeah, this is the way to, to do it because the, everybody's worshiping the beast and, and he's showing great signs and wonders and, and I want to be able to buy and sell. It seemed logical to turn to the beast. He, he seemed like such a leader, a leader like the world has never known, but great deception and darkness. And look what it brings. You know, there are Christians that sometimes think, I will enter into sin because it seems so logical. It seems like it makes sense. It seems like the thing to do. There are too many Christians, I think, that say, can I do this? Can I have that? How close to the world can I, you know, be? Or how much of the world can I be involved in? Rather than how close can I get to the Lord? And sometimes we will enter into sin or commit sin or carnality because it just seems logical. I, I, I've got to do this. I've got to lie about this. I'm, uh, I, I'm going to do this thing. It seems like the thing to do. God will not bless sin. And that's why we always need to remember to allow the Lord to determine how it is that we react and how we live. That we need to know truth. And how to live. And not allow the darkness back into our life. And don't just say a little bit of darkness in my life. Or a little bit of carnality. Or a little bit of sin. Nobody know it won't hurt anyone. You remember in, in 1 Samuel the story of, of, of Samuel comes to Saul the king of Israel. And thus says the, the Lord Saul. You're to go and destroy all the Amalekites. Destroy every single one of them. Don't leave any. So Saul goes out to battle. He goes out to battle, and he comes back, and the Lord said, destroy all the Amalekites, sheep, oxen, everything. So he comes back, and he's got the best of the sheep and the oxen, and he comes back with the king of the Amalekites, Agai. And the Lord had said to Samuel, I've rejected Saul. And so Samuel goes out to meet Saul, who had this big celebration, big parade going on. He set up a monument for himself at, at Carmel. And, and he comes back and he says, I performed all that the Lord told me to. I've destroyed all the Amalekites. I've destroyed everything. 
should be pleased with me. And it was Samuel that said, then what's the bleeding of sheep and oxen that I hear? Oh, I just brought these back for sacrifice, the best of them. And who's this? Well, this is Agai, the king of the Amalekites. I brought him back as a trophy. So you know the story that Samuel takes a sword and he hacks up, you know, Agai, the Amalekite. And he says, God has rejected you. It's better to obey than to sacrifice. And he's going to give the kingdom to another who has a heart after God. Here is, you know, and I get these questions. Why does it seem like God was so hard on Saul but cut David slack? I mean, Saul almost did everything. I mean, he's so what? He brought a little bit of the, uh, the sacrifice back, you know, and he's going, bless me before the people. It was all about him. And he brought back a guy. What's the big deal? He did mostly what the Lord told him to do. David, he committed murder and adultery. So why did he get to be king? Because he had a heart after God and he repented. Saul didn't. Saul's going, what's the big deal? You know, Samuel, why are you coming down on me? You're embarrassing me before the people. You know, bless me before the people. I, I did this. It was all about him. Did you ever notice the big difference between David and Saul? Saul never wrote a psalm to the Lord. 20 years later, Saul in his disobedience he gets killed on Mount Gilboa. And he gets killed by an Amalekite. You think in your life that you can have a little egg guy around? Oh, I just got this little egg guy around, this little carnality, this little sin. I'll tell you what will happen. It'll end up getting you down the road, just like it did Saul. He was killed by an Amalekite because he did not do what the Lord told him to do. And that's the way a lot of Christians are living today. I can have a little carnality. I can have a little sin. I can just have my little egg eye here. What's the big deal? It is a big deal because it will come back and bite you. And it will do you in and wipe you out. And as Christians, we need to understand that. So here, as we look at this, we're reminded of those things. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Everything dies in the sea. Revelation chapter 8, you remember the second trumpet, there was a partial third of the sea died. Here it's complete. The pollution, the stink, unimaginable. What's washing up on the beaches? Verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became his blood. Again, there a partial poisoning of water in the third trumpet blast in Revelation chapter 8. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, it's interesting, isn't it, that there's an angel of the waters? And the angel says that you are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Those who shed the blood of the saints are now forced to drink this deadly water. They refused living water, and now they're forced to drink deadly water. They refused living water, and now the result of it is this judgment. Can I ask you a question? 
What water are you drinking? You remember in John's gospel, then in chapter 4, that Jesus has a conversation with the Samaritan woman, and they're at Jacob's well, and, and, and he says, if you drink of this water, you'll thirst again. But I have living water to give to you, and you will never thirst again. Jesus in Jerusalem later on in John's gospel would stand up there in the temple in the last day of the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, you see they would commemorate how they came out of the wilderness into the promised land. And the priests would have this procession and we'll show it to you, those of you who are going to Israel with us, how they would go on the temple mount and they celebrate the last day the priests would go out to the pool of Siloam. The first six days of the feast, they would have this procession. They would sing the Psalms. They would come back. They would pour out pots of water on the temple mount area where they celebrate people would camp out around there it was like a big camp out commemorating how they slept under the stars and then on the last days when the priests went down to the pool of Siloam they would come back and the pots would be empty because they commemorated when they came into the promised land that rock didn't flow you know water from the rock didn't flow anymore manna didn't drop from heaven they came into the promised land and it's that point that Jesus stood up and he said if anyone thirsts come to me what a scene that must have been. All these people and the priests and they're singing the Psalms and they got these pots and there's no water and he stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. And out of your innermost will flow torrents of living water. So what well are you drinking from? This is the well of the world. You're always going to be thirsty. But if we drink of the living water, because all of us become thirsty, and we become thirsty in our souls and in our lives, and he has living water to give to you, you drink of the water of the world, you're always going to be thirsty. But he has living water to give to us daily, continually. So I heard another from the altar saying, so, Even so, Lord, <coughs> God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. In the fourth angel, verse 8, poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. The men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these things. They did not repent and give him glory. Very delicate balance, you know, the, the distance of the earth to the sun, nitrogen oxygen ratio the size of the earth you know the the speed of rotation men here are scorched by the sun could there be a balance change all of a sudden I, I don't know but these judgments are coming from God and they did not repent showing the hardness of men's heart and then the fifth angel verse 10 poured out his bowl on the throne and the beast in his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pain and their sores and did not repent of their deeds some say that this is a symbolic darkness I believe it's very well is a darkness like in Egypt the ninth plague was a literal darkness it was so dark they could feel the darkness 
In the fourth trumpet judgment, a third of the day did not shine. Verse 12, and then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters were dried up, so the way the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them in a battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together in a place called, in Hebrew, Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon. Antichrist going to war in this last world war. The kings of the east come. The Euphrates River is dried up. There is a dam in Turkey that can do that, dry up the Euphrates River, allow the armies to come into over the Fertile Crescent into northern Israel. Those of you going to Israel with us next month, we are going to stand and overlook this valley, the Jezreel Valley. Very sobering. Verse 13, this devilish trinity, the dragon being Satan, the beast, Antichrist, the false prophet, unclean spirits coming out of their mouths like frogs. Frogs were seen as unclean and repulsive by the Jews. The battle is more than just nation against nations. It is a spiritual in nature, and it is nations against God, being demonically led with deceptive signs and wonders. You know, there's three great wars that are spoken of in the scriptures. There is, first of all, Ezekiel 38 and 39. There are stage-setting events taking place even as we speak to where Ezekiel 38 and 39 could be the next major war in the Middle East. Things are set. The alliances are made. Things are in place. When is it going to happen? We don't know for sure, but it's going to happen in the latter days. There is the battle of Armageddon that we know will take place here at the end of the tribulation period. And then the final battle of Satan against God after the millennium, Revelation chapter 20, we will talk about that when we get there. But the battle of Armageddon is called the great day of God. And, and he wins, God does, not Antichrist, not Satan, not the nations, but God does. So be watchful. And then as we finish tonight, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air. And a loud voice came from the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was great earthquakes, such as mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Now we had hail tonight. I hate the sound of hail. And when you hear it, and it wasn't real big hail, but... You know, we live in a part of the country where hail comes and it's noisy. Here's hailstone about the weight of a talent. There's a debate how much is a talent. Some say five pounds. Some say 100 pounds. I don't know exactly what it is, but that's big hail. It's going to do great destruction. And men blaspheme God because of the plagues of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. The announcement coming from the throne of God, it is done. Judgment is complete. Jesus Christ is going to come back. We will see 
religious Babylon be judged. Actually, the Antichrist is going to turn and destroy the woman riding the beast. You might want to be here because I think we're seeing the very foundations of that false worldwide church today. Chapter 18, commercial Babylon. Chapter 19, Jesus Christ comes back. You know, as I read this, as the voice from heaven comes, it is done. What does it remind us of? When Jesus, who took the wrath for you and for me, what did he cry out from the cross? It is finished. It is finished. Praise God. And we come here tonight and we can, you know, have joy in our hearts and and comfort one another knowing that we're not appointed to wrath but to obtain salvation. And know that the Lord's going to take us out of and away from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. But it is also very sobering that these things will come to pass. So we want to share it with others that Jesus Christ cried out, it is finished from the cross as he died for our sins. The glorious gospel that we get to share with others. I pray that there's an urgency that is in our lives to share that with others. That there is an urgency. And that we would look to give the greatest news ever proclaimed. Three greatest words. Jesus loves you. After that, it is finished. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for, Lord, just knowing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He rose again and we have a living hope. And as we read these chapters, these aren't the funnest chapters to have a Bible study in, but they are a part of the canon of Scripture. And this is given to us, Lord, because we see the seriousness of sin. So, Lord, I just want to pray tonight that none of us here, that we would open our hearts to the carnality or sin or compromise in any way, that we would not have any Amalekites. That, Lord, help us to be yielded to you. And we struggle. It is a struggle of the flesh. So, Lord, help us. We can't do it in our own flesh. We can't have victory. It is the work of the Spirit. So, Lord, I pray that tonight, and, and I just want to pray for you, who maybe there's an attitude or something that the Lord's been dealing with you about. Will you just take a minute? Let's just take a minute. Will you give it to the Lord? Listen, He loves you. He knows what's in your heart. He knows all about you. He knows if there is compromise, sin. He knows if there's carnality will you just take a minute to say lord help me because i don't want the amalekites i don't want the carnality i don't want the worldliness but i do struggle lord i need you help me empower me fill me with your holy spirit that i may live a life after you I don't want to stand at the door of the tabernacle. I want to come in and sit at your feet and have sweet fellowship and intimacy with you. I don't want to regard sin in my heart. I don't want to just flippantly look at it lightly. I I want to have a fear of you, a reverence for you, Lord. Because you are going to judge sin. And I thank you that, that Jesus came, your son, and took the wrath and the judgment for me. And I want to live now a life for you. 
you brought me out of the darkness into your marvelous light. You didn't bring me out of the darkness into the light so I can go back to the darkness or dabble with the darkness, but to live fully for you, Lord. Lord, deal with us. In the honesty of our hearts, Lord, we just give these things to you because you love us. Lord, we know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no separation from your love. But we also know that those things that they can deceive us and blind us and put us in captivity and bondage, a slippery slope to the road of carnality rather than a road of holiness. I pray that we would come drink of the living waters daily. And Lord, that we would be ones. that we would have a desire to draw close to you and come boldly into the Holy of Holies because of what Jesus Christ has done to the throne of grace in time of need and we have need. Lord, I thank you for tonight. Take us home safely. Lord, I pray you bless the rest of our week, bless our families, our children. We once again pray for our nation. Lord, that there will be a turning to you as well. May the church, Lord, because I get concerned about the church and we're connected to the church, Lord. And in humility, We pray that the church would stand on righteousness in your truth and the gospel and not be ashamed of it. So Lord, we thank you for tonight and your word and your love, your forgiveness, your compassion. Lord, your long suffering. We thank you so much that you love your children and we can cry out with the spirit of adoption, Abba, Father. So, Lord, may we have joy in our hearts as we leave here, knowing that you go with us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Everyone said, amen. Amen. Would you please stand?